welcome, welcome everybody to the third episode of the FearCast, the podcast addressing your questions about anxiety and OCD recovery. I'm your host, Kevin Foss, and I'm a licensed therapist specializing in anxiety spectrum disorders. Thank you to all of you who have subscribed to the podcast thus far. Uh, And if you like the show, please tell a friend about it or please write a positive review over at iTunes. Um, Doing so really helps the podcast grow uh, and it makes it more visible to new listeners. Before I get into the questions today, I want to address something that I've been discussing with a lot of my clients lately uh, that you may be wondering yourself. It's kind of has two parts to it. We'll go over those uh, a little bit briefly, and I want to get to give you an example of something you can do with it yourself. So, the first part is this. How can I tell the difference between my regular thoughts and my OCD thoughts? And then the second part is this. What do I do with them? So, generally speaking, someone's coming to me because they're having unwanted intrusive thoughts, and they're not working for them. Because they're doing compulsions over and over and over again. And it's causing marked distress in their life. It's, it's getting in the way of their social life or their work life, and it's causing a tremendous problem somewhere. So people with OCD and anxiety disorders experience their fears as unwanted, intrusive thoughts, feelings, images, sensations, or urges, and they result in compulsions. So these are either mental or behavioral, and these are really just things that we do to try to deal with the resulting fear or anxiety or discomfort, or simply put, just the fact that the thought is there repetitively. So two definitions. Unwanted. This is a thought that you didn't ask for. You didn't actively try to conjure the thought. It just kind of showed up. So an end intrusive. This is a thought that showed up seemingly out of nowhere, and it just it forced its way into your attention. So obsessive thoughts have four qualities to them. They are unwanted, intrusive, distressing, and repetitive. Again, unwanted, intrusive, repetitive, and distressing. I flipped them up at the end. A really good way to identify which ones are your obsessive thoughts is if they fall into those categories. Unwanted, intrusive, repetitive, distressing. So it's not a thought that just bothers you all of a sudden and that kind of goes away. It's not a thought necessarily that you've never had before and just shows up. And you're like, oh no, what if this terrible thing would happen? Or you're watching a movie and it's, it's a, there's a, 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 either an existential or a relationship issue or something like that or that you've never really thought about before and it bothers you. Well, that may not be an OCD thought just yet, but it's when it starts to become repetitive and really distressing, and it shows up out of nowhere. Another good way to identify which ones are your OCD thoughts is if you've spent hours and hours and hours trying to solve the problem. Either you're washing your hands repetitively and excessively to try to make yourself clean. You have looked online, you've read the articles over and over and over again. Now you've gotten some relief in the past and you felt pretty good, but then all of a sudden you have an intrusive, unwanted thought of, well, what if you didn't read it right? So you go back to the interwebs and you read the same thing over and over again. Or you ask your friend, hey, what do you think about this? Because you've had that worry that shows up again. Or you go back and you read the Bible again because you're worried about, well, what if God thinks X about me? And you've had that thought over and over and over again. And reading that same passage just isn't quite answering the question again. So now you're going back to the drawing board and reading even more things. These are some ways to start identifying that these are your unwanted, intrusive, repetitive, and distressing thoughts. So once you've identified it, well, now what? 
The question then comes in, well, now what do I do with them? The OCD lie is, if you just put in a little bit of effort, everything's going to be all right. If you just wash your hands, if you just don't go talk to that person, uh, if you find an excuse to get out of this, uh, if you just do this in this order, if you just touch this or don't touch that, everything's going to be fine. And nothing bad is going to happen to you or your friend or your loved one or to your future or to the afterlife. But that's a lie. Because we don't have any control over those things. And we ultimately can't get certainty over almost anything. I don't care how much wood you knock on, it's not going to prevent you from getting into a car accident. Now we feel good in the moment, but rationally speaking, that piece of wood ain't stopping a car. Furthermore, you've spent hours and hours on this subject, and you've tried to solve it and fix it and get certainty, but you haven't been able to. So what do you do with it? Well, there are a lot of things you can do with it. You can create exposures with it. You can expose yourself to that fear and put yourself in situations that create that sense of anxiety, working towards habituating to it. You can use uh, acceptance tools and accept that there are those feelings there without trying to lean into it any further or without trying to avoid it, but just to accept that we kind of have this level of discomfort just kind of bubbling around that does fluctuate because you know you and you've been you a long time and sometimes things are intense and sometimes they're easy, but you can accept that feeling. We can do momentary exposures. So these are situations where uh, we don't actively seek this out. We just have a natural exposure. So it's just you going out and living your life and you encounter that thing or that person or that situation and you lean into it. So you do momentary flooding. You amplify it. You make it worse in the moment. You can do scripting, more exposure ideas. One tool that I'm going to talk about today is what I'm going to call the power of laziness. It's doing nothing. Not trying to solve it or fix it or resolve it, but to just live your life. And to live your life as intended and refocusing back on what you had previously done before you had this intrusive thought that just snuck its way into your brain or into your body. So what's involved with this is one, recognizing and identifying that you have this unwanted, intrusive, distressing, or repetitive thought just kind of came in. And sometimes the best way, I think the best way to deal with this is first to recognize what, it, what you feel like in the moment. So oftentimes we get this bubbling up of this anxiety, or we get this tension, or we get this tightness in our chest, or our, our, our throat tightens up, or we get this pressure in our head, or our shoulders all of a sudden get tightened, and the, our, our shoulders are trying to climb into our ears. Or we get that sense of uneasiness. Now, OCD always feels like OCD. You know what that feeling is. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably know that feeling. You know that feeling. And it's different from typical anxieties, from typical fears that you get. Things like if you're not afraid of snakes, but all of a sudden you go on a hike and you see a snake, that feeling. That's going to be different than this amorphous, uncomfortable, uh, uncertain, unresolved sense that OCD has. Or for some people, it's going to be an inc it's a wildly exaggerated fear that OCD has. And it's, it's so much more intense than the experience of other fears that are kind of more low level and manageable and identifiable. You can really point to the thing that you're afraid of, whereas with OCD, it's this just global kind of untethered uneasiness. But again, you know you and be honest about what those things are. 
Okay, so the power of laziness. So the first thing is, once you've recognized that that feeling is there, or that that thought is coming in that is repetitive, and you've had it over and over again, we can identify it as a thought. We can identify it as simply a thought. It's a consideration that your brain could worry about or stress about or mull over or figure out, and maybe in a different context you would or could. Every thought that we're ever going to think about or everything that we're ever going to experience is neutral. It's neither good nor bad, right nor wrong. It just kind of is. Not all of those thoughts, however, deserve our attention, nor do we have to deal with them right now. Because you know yourself, and you know that you can sometimes get caught in a trap of OCD, instead of fixing this problem right now, we're going to kick this can down the road, and we're going to say, for right now, I don't need to solve it. For right now, I don't need to waste my time trying to fix it. I'm going to push this can down the road, and I'm just going to wait. I'm going to get back to that thing that I was trying to do, which might be watching this movie where I got triggered to some other crazy thought. Or I'm going to hang out with my significant other. And I'm not going to engage in whether or not I truly love them or not love them, but I'm just going to shift my attention towards them in this moment. Refocus towards the thing of greater value as opposed to that thought that I've had a bazillion other times. Now, as always, I have a story or an example or a silliness to offer for this. I want you to imagine that you're going to the supermarket and you're going there for cheese. So you know your supermarket, you know where the cheese aisle is, and you, uh, you, you get in the store and you try to go towards there. But as you go down one aisle, you happen to notice over there that they're selling pig's feet. Now, I don't know if your store happens to stock pig's feet. Uh, mine does. And uh, you look at them, and from my perspective, they look gross. Now, please don't hear this as, as an indictment as to whether or not they are generally bad or globally bad or no one should like them or people who like them are bad or cultures who like them are bad. It's just, I think they look gross. But then again, you got to know, I also like spam and a lot of people think that's gross. So take it for what you will. So back to my example. I look over there at the, uh, at the pig's feet in the jar and they look kind of gross. Now, I could do a couple of things. I could get really pissed off that they're there. And I could be infuriated and throw them off the, uh, off, off the shelf. Or I could get really upset and I could go up to the manager of the store and say, hey manager, why do you even stock this disgusting food? Now I'm trying to go get cheese and you're trying to distract me with this horrible, terrible, ugly food. How rude of you. That's terrible. Now what I've done is I've just now wasted a whole bunch of time yelling at this other person who really doesn't care. I could sit there and I could evaluate whether or not I really do like pig's feet. Maybe I, maybe I actually do. I noticed it. I didn't notice other things in the store. Maybe I really do like pig's feet. Maybe I will like pig's feet in the future. Maybe I should like pig's feet. I mean, it's there. People like it. People love it. People love it enough to buy it from a store. So maybe I should like it. Maybe deep down that's truly what I wanted. Maybe that's why I went to the store in the first place. Maybe I'm just lying to myself. I went here for cheese, but no. I'm here for pig's feet. I saw it. Why would I have looked at it if I didn't want it, right? Now, I could do all of that stuff, but ultimately speaking, for right now, that's a waste of time. I'm not there for pig's feet. I'm there for cheese. Now, again, you know you. You know how you get caught, how you get stuck, what gets you stuck. Sometimes we can do exposures. Maybe I buy the pig's feet this time and I give it a try. 
Maybe I write an exposure script about how I love pig's feet and how my life is better or how my life is worse for not having pig's feet. I can do a lot of things with it. But in this instance, I'm just going to keep going, get my cheese, get out of the store, and not waste my time on something that I don't truly want. Or I don't want right now. Alright, so you can obviously see how this applies to OCD thoughts or anxious thoughts. Sometimes we're just living our life intending to go do something, and then all of a sudden, we get distracted by something, or someone, or something, or some place, or some idea, or some feeling. And then, we get caught up in it. Instead of going to do the thing that we wanted to do, we get stuck in this feeling and we go through the rat race again of trying to answer the same questions or trying to get to a new level of reassurance that we previously might have gotten to, but now we feel untethered. We feel like we didn't answer the question right. Or, I've got to do this thing again. So one tool that you can use in your toolbox is to say, maybe later. Maybe not right now. I've got other things to do with my life. Or I've got other things to do for right now. So I'm going to go do those things. And I'm going to wait. Maybe after I get my cheese and after I go home and make my whatever it is I'm doing with cheese, maybe then I'll consider the pig's feet. But for right now, I don't need to get into that. Now, later on, I may or may not get into that, but you can decide for yourself whether or not that's a compulsion. But for right now, I don't need to get, I don't need to get sucked into the obligation of figuring it out. So practice that this week. When you notice an obsessive thought come up, when you notice that that same theme has come up again, say, eh, maybe not right now. Maybe later. But right now I'm going to keep doing X, whatever it is that you're trying to do. I'm going to go do that. And then maybe later I'll get back into this. Because then it's not spending any more amount of time saying that that food or that thought is good, or it's bad, or it's right, or it's wrong but that it is a food. You could buy it, the thought, you could have it and evaluate it. If you really wanted to, and if you really got pleasure out of it, and if you found joy in it, and if your life was going to be better for it, or you were going to gain something reasonable from it. But likely speaking, you're not. So, go on to the thing of greater value, the cheese in this example, and then get back to your life. So that's one tool you can give a try. All right, off to the questions. Beth asked, I loved your first two episodes. I found the information in them useful and very applicable to me. I understand that reassurance seeking online and offline in OCD is generally discouraged. But what if you are interested in a subject that triggers your OCD? What if a hobby triggers OCD? For example, learning about philosophy triggering existential OCD. Should we be avoiding it? Thanks. Thanks so much for the question, Beth. So reassurance seeking is a four-letter word when it comes to anxiety treatment. So generally speaking, reassurance seeking is discouraged because it provides a false sense and temporary sense of understanding or confidence or of safety. So the compulsive reassurance seeking is giving credibility to the obsessive thought through putting effort and action into something that is usually irrational and absurd. Questions in reassurance seeking, though, in general, isn't all that bad. If we don't know an answer to a question that we've never thought of before or have never sought the answer to, it's reasonable to go check. It's reasonable to ask somebody. 
So let's say you've had all of a sudden this pain in your arm. You've had it for a couple of days and it's not getting any better. It's not getting any worse. Well, a reasonable person is going to ask a doctor. So it's not just that you're asking this question, but also where you're trying to get the information from. So for example, if you've never had this pain in your arm and it's not getting better, but it's not really getting significantly worse, it's not limiting your function in any sort of way, but it's, it's kind of new and you're trying to figure out what it is, go see a doctor. Don't ask your cousin who's, who's, a, who's an accountant or don't ask your wife who's an elementary school teacher unless either one of those people have a pretty good background in uh, maybe they were an EMT or they were, they were pre-med before they changed their, uh, changed their major. But go ask a real deal doctor. It's also going to depend on whether or not, for example, the pain in your arm. Let's say you go to see a real doctor. The doctor says, your arm's fine. But you go, uh, I don't know about that. Maybe the doctor didn't really know. Maybe I didn't really ask the question right. Maybe they were kind of off their game and distracted and didn't really fully understand. Maybe they didn't do all this, all the tests that I think they were supposed to do. Um, I looked up on this medical forum, and for some reason, John 75 said that I'm supposed to do a, a, a CAT scan and uh, an X-ray and all these things. And my doctor kind of felt my arm and said it was fine. Maybe I should go talk to another doctor. And you go talk to another doctor, and you keep checking forums. All of this is inappropriate checking. Furthermore, a slight variation on your obsessive theme may not constitute a, quote, new question. Let's say your main fear is getting pancreatic cancer. Then all of a sudden you have a fear that you might be getting brain cancer, and you don't have any overwhelming evidence. Then you should be treating this like every other OCD question. I don't think this constitutes a, quote, new concern, but we can treat it just like regular old OCD. To the question of hobbies, being interested in something isn't the worst thing out there. However, when it comes to things related to or is your main obsession, you need to be aware that you're kind of playing with fire. The example of philosophy and existential OCD. A more conservative therapist might say, this isn't something you should ever engage in. This is just completely off limits to you because it has the potential of being just a minefield of compulsions and excuses for your compulsions. Your reasons for reading that one more book or reading a book again might be expressed as, I'm reading this because I just love it so much. But you're really reading it because you're trying to find the answer to the universe or an answer to a question that your OCD suggests you've got to have or that you've looked it up, but now all of a sudden you're doubting a detail in it, or you're doubting that you even remembered it, or maybe I didn't read it right, something to that effect. Other examples of people doing one thing but for the wrong reasons can be reading about theology or even going to seminary to cover up their scrupulosity, their religious scrupulosity, that is. Another example, uh, this is not a hobby, but someone who, who just wants to be a loner, claims that they're just a loner, um, uh, under, under the guise of that they just don't like people at their school or their work, uh, but really they're being a loner because they're, they're, they're trying to hide their overwhelming sense of social anxiety or their fear of judgment from others. Another example, in academics and trying to be a straight-A student, if you just want to be the top of the class, you claim that you just, you know, you love being the top of the class, learning, school, doing homework, all that stuff, but really you're covering up for perfectionism or seeking approval from others. So to the point of hobbies, I'm not going to say it's the worst thing out there if you have an interest in philosophy, um, 
but you do have existential OCD. But I will say, or any of the other things, but I will say, if you are going to engage in it, it is your choice, but you must proceed with caution and self-awareness of your limits and your compulsions. So if you're generally interested in reading about philosophy, great, go for it. But, every pun intended, know thyself first. If in your heart of hearts you know that you're doing a compulsion by the amount or type of reading that you're doing, or you know deep down that your interest is just an elaborate lie and a cover for your obsessions, then you need to either put the book down for now and accept that you may not get that answer for today, or take a break from your hobby altogether and find something else if resisting your compulsions is just too much to handle right now. So I'm not saying no, never. But I am saying that you really have to go into this knowing where the pitfalls are, where the quicksand is for you, and knowing that you have the ability to take a break from it to resist compulsive behavior when it rears its ugly head. Now that's likely to happen after you take some time and really do some extensive exposures to not getting the answer, to being able to sit in the uncertainty and not try to seek it as much as you possibly can. Now that may take some time, and again, you may need to take a break from your hobby, whatever it is, for quite some time until you can get through some effective treatment and you can resist as much as possible. So lastly, a question that I really think that you need to ask yourself for whatever your hobby is, is, is this hobby really worth the potential of getting stuck in a compulsive loop? So do you love this hobby so much that it's worth falling into the pit and reinforcing your obsessive thoughts and getting trapped and doing the compulsions over and over and over again? That's a question you really need to ask yourself. Again, I don't want to stomp on someone's genuine hobby because every good thing can eventually become a bad thing when it's done compulsively. So it's really something to think about, maybe process that with a really, really good friend who knows you and your anxiety, or talk about this with your therapist if you have one. But it's something to think about. Thanks for the question. So Janie over at Reddit asked, What can you do when your anxiety revolves around the fear of loved ones getting sick and dying? I can't, quote, expose myself to them dying. And even if I could, I wouldn't learn that it's not as bad as I thought because it's arguably the worst experience anyone can ever go through. Even though there are not any immediate worries about my loved ones, I know as a fact I will eventually have to go through this. I have grandparents still alive, for example. How do I not worry about this inevitability? So Janie, thanks for the question. So I'm jokingly going to call this inevitability OCD. This is the obsession about stuff that's just going to happen at some point. Barring us dying first, this is stuff that's going to happen to all of us. So some other things that are also going to happen to us are our relationships are going to end, either because of divorce or breaking up or one of us dying. For those of us in Southern California, myself included, earthquakes are going to happen. Now, I guarantee very few things in life, but one of the things that I can, with relative confidence, guarantee that we're going to have a giant earthquake down here at some point, and there will be people dying, and there's going to be a, a tremendous amount of property damage. That's stuff that's going to happen. Eventually, also, you, are, you and I are going to hurt the loved ones that we have. Either emotionally or physically, it just kind of happens. 
Another thing that's inevitably going to happen, we're going to get into a car accident. Either it's going to be a big one or a small one, but it's probably going to happen if you drive. And even if you don't drive, you can still get hit by a car. Let's all remember that. So two of the biggest questions that I have for you. What are you afraid of? And what compulsions are you doing in response to it? Some of the fears you could have are this. What if I'm not going to be able to handle it when it happens? It could mean that you're getting older yourself, and that makes you scared. Another fear could be, I'm eventually going to be alone. Maybe it's I have no control over life, death, or just the passing of time. Or, simply speaking, just people dying makes me scared and uncomfortable. Now, some compulsions that you might be doing, just guessing, might be checking in on elderly family members to see how they're doing. Maybe avoiding the news or anything that discusses death. Maybe suppressing thoughts about funerals or images of caskets. Perhaps you're reading about life after death, the biological process of dying, or you're just ruminating about what it means to die. If you're currently working with a therapist, and I, again, I encourage everyone to go chat with a therapist from time to time, but if you're working with a therapist, uh, you can talk with him or her about the meaning of these fears for you. Thinking about death is really common. Everyone eventually thinks about it, not only just in general, but also eventually as you get older, you're going to start be thinking about it for yourself. So, we're, And we're all going to deal with it at some point. We're all going to know someone who's going to die. So processing this story your brain's telling you about the fact that a loved one will die will help you to develop a more rational understanding of what death is and how to challenge any irrational beliefs you have about life, death, or the avoidance of it. Talking with a therapist will also help you to figure out some pretty good exposures you can do. However, the meaning of the feared story and the specific compulsions you're doing will help guide those exposures with what you'll do. An exposure you might be able to work towards with your therapist is writing a eulogy for either yourself or for the other person, and then rereading and rereading and rereading it until you aren't as triggered, meaning the anxiety comes down, or you can read it without giving in to any compulsions, or you can resist giving in to some of those compulsions that you will have considered and thought about as we previously discussed. Number one, accepting that this is an inevitability is a great first step. You may not be able to get used to or be okay with the reality of people dying when it actually happens, meaning when it actually happens, not when you think about it. But you can work towards tolerating the feelings of uncertainty, of fear, and of unsettledness that we feel right now. Because right now, likely speaking, they're not dying or they're not dead. As an acceptance exercise, when you're triggered with the idea of death, I want you to try to refocus your attention away from the typical struggle you have with death. So the typical rat race that you do, the compulsive thinking that you do of checking, of reassurance, things like that. But shifting your attention towards the feelings you have in your body at that moment. Remind yourself, the feelings you have in your body are just feelings. They are not signs of death. They are not death themselves. They are not signs of an upcoming death. They're not predictors that you can't handle death, but simply feelings that your body experiences that are tied to your autonomic nervous system, tied to your fight-or-flight system, and that you can handle them right now for as long as they are with you right now. 
trying to avoid these feelings or fighting with the thought of death again certainly won't help you to avoid death. It's certainly not going to stop death from happening. But it will prolong the feelings and your fear of death. Try seeing how long you can sit with that feeling of anxiety or fear while resisting any of the compulsions you're currently doing. Try for a minute. Refocus your attention just on what your body's feeling for that minute. Notice how it changes, how it fluctuates. Is it hot? Is it cold? Is it tingly? Is it tight? Is it loose? Does it wobble? Does it move from your shoulders to your gut, to your foot, to your ankles, to your earlobes? What is that like? Now, if you can sit in that for a minute, then maybe you can sit in it for two minutes. If you can do it for two minutes, you can do it for four minutes. And I'm willing to bet that if you were to sit in that feeling for long enough, you're probably, one, going to become super bored by focusing on your feelings, and two, your thoughts and your feelings are going to be replaced by something else. You're going to have the thought, oh, I need to get back to work. Or you're going to notice that discomfort has pretty much come down and has gone away. Now it'll come back because, again, death is something that is constantly going to be there. It's something that uh, will happen to everybody. But you can sit there and handle that feeling for a short period of time and a growing period of time. But give this a try to see if it changes your view of your ability to shoulder this momentary and transitory uneasiness of the idea of something that is, isn't currently happening, but eventually will. Thanks for the question. Okay, we made it through another episode of the FearCast. If you like the show and you find it helpful, please go ahead and tell a friend. And as always, if you have a question or comment for a future episode, you can either leave me a voice message at 714-594-9281 or go over to the website fearcastpodcast.com, click on the submit a question link and leave me a message there. Remember, the FearCast is not a substitute for psychotherapy. If you have any questions about finding a therapist or need some extra help in your recovery, you can visit the Find Help page on fearcastpodcast.com. Until next time, take a risk, challenge yourself, and don't take your brain too seriously. Bye.